0: Chapter 12 through 14 is our next section. Uh, we titled it Spiritual Service, Unity, Diversity, and Giftings by the Holy Spirit. So, once again, let's talk about the problem that's going on in, in Corinth. The Corinthians loved the eccentric, they loved the showy things. So, naturally, they're going to love the showy gifts. Okay, the things are going to draw attention to self. But, That goes in contradiction to why God gives gifts. God gives the gifts for the edification of the body uh, of of believers, the edification, the building up of the church, and the sanctification of the believer to make you more like Jesus. So it's intended to produce Christ-likeness in one another and in yourself rather than self-exaltation. Now, the way this is going to work is we've got three movements in this section. The first is... Spiritual uh, of spiritual gifts is chapter 12, where we're going to see unity and diversity in the body. Unity and diversity in the body in chapter 12. Then chapter 3, that, that what holds the body together is, is love above all else. And then chapter 14, that there is to be order and edification as the aim of every gathered service. Order and edification is the, the purpose of every gathered service for a church. Okay? Now, just to, to give you some framework, just to help with some of the languages, we're going to move through this section swiftly, not because we're just trying to get through it, but because the, the logic moves fairly quickly. Okay? So just to give you some background here, the, when someone becomes a Christian, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is the language that's used in 1 Corinthians. We'll see it. All believers are baptized in the Spirit. What that means is that you are united with Christ, you are identified with Christ. The Spirit seals you, you are justified, you are adopted, you are reconciled, you are redeemed. All of that happens at conversion. The Holy Spirit then begins to produce in us the life of Christ. This happens, if you might say, generally with the transformation of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love God and live for God. The Holy Spirit also gifts us with manifestations of grace that are produced in our our lives, not all believers have the same combination of those gifts. Some believers seem to have several different gifts. Some may have one really prominent gift. Every believer is just a little bit different. Okay. Um, Now, the Greek word charismata, where we get charismatic, right, is translated spiritual gifts. It comes from the same family of, of the, the Charis family. Charis is translated what? Grace. So, newsflash, if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, you're charismatic. That's just what it means. It means that you're gifted with grace by the Spirit. That's, that's what a, Christia, a Christian is, a charismatic. So, just need to, to be clear, just language, that's what it means. So a good way to think about spiritual gifts is, is this. It's, it's a gift of grace... By the Holy Spirit, to a believer that ought produce thankfulness to God, that God would would give a gift to me, and humility. And those two things we've seen, thankfulness and humility, already in the book that he's aiming to produce um, by by his teaching here. Now, the problem is, for the Corinthians, they got it twisted. And it was producing the opposite. It was producing pride and showmanship and And aiming particularly at personal edification. So basically, services were marked by, I'm going to come and get mine with Jesus, and I've I've got the gifts that's loud and proud, and it's all about that. It's about who's the most spiritual among, right? But that's not what gifts are given for. They're given certainly for personal edification, but... When we're gathered together, it's for corporate edification. When we're with other believers, it's for, for being built up into the image of Christ, OK? Um, so let's just dive in to unity and diversity here in chapter 12. Um, and what we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit gives us first, the, the greatest gift in verses one through three, which is conversion. And then there's manifestations of grace that are given differently to different believers in the body in verses 4 through 11. And then we're going to see that this body that's made up of many members is still one, one body. He's going to use the illustration of a body, body of Christ, as a, as a metaphor to help us understand what the church looks like. Okay, That's going to be 12 through the end of the chapter. So first, the gift of conversion here in verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. What's happening here is he's saying that the Holy Spirit leads you away from idolatry. And it leads you to a saving profession that Jesus is indeed Lord. This is not saying that a non-believer can't actually say Jesus is Lord. It's not talking about the words. It's talking about from the heart a confession that Jesus is Lord, I'm with him. He saying that is not natural. That is supernatural, and it is the primary gift of the Holy Spirit, if you will, that we're united to Jesus and we see Jesus rightly. Which, by the way, the Holy Spirit, he's been called the shy member of the Trinity, because what he wants to do in all of his ministry is to magnify Jesus. He wants Jesus to be seen as great and glorious as he is. Because it's through Jesus that we know the Father. Okay? So, gift of conversion. Now, grace manifested. Grace manifested or, or made seen. Verse 4 through 11. Now, I just want you to watch. That there's some words as we read. Watch for the words varieties. Watch for the word same. Watch for the word another. Watch for those words. They're going to show up a lot. Okay? Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith. gives a variety of gifts to His church. The one God manifests various aspects of His grace diversely among His his people. And you'll notice here that there is unity, same Spirit, and diversity. Unity and diversity here in in the body, gifted by the Spirit. The one God gives diverse gifts to the church for a unified purpose. What was it there in verse 7? For the common good. God gifts you not so that you can have some realized identity of identification of self. Like, so, what's my, I need a, you know, a spiritual gift personality test so I know who I am. Paul'd be like, what? I ain't got, that's not what? That's not what the gifts are about. The gifts are about others. Gifts of the Holy Spirit are manifestations of the Spirit, making public, making visible, embodying the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives each believer and churches gifts according to His will. He doesn't always gift every church with every gift, but He always gifts every church with what they need to do what He's called them to do. It's important. Now, I think I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what these things are now, though we're going to see them more in chapter 14. But there's two particular gifts that He's going to tee off on, particularly in chapter 14. It's the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Chapter 14 is all about thinking about those gifts being used in the corporate gathering because evidently in Corinth, those two gifts were were wrongly being exalted, okay? Um, So let's first talk about about prophecy. So prophecy is a, well, first, let me tell you what a, a normal service would have looked like. You would have gathered together. And it would have probably been much more interactive than most of our services are today, but uh, people, would have, we, people would have been leading in song. Very often they would have singing from the, the, from the Psalms. There would have been new songs, I'm sure, they were written too, They had artists then too, but um, yeah, it would have been singing. People would have gotten up and had a reading from Scripture. That would have been the Old Testament they would have been reading, uh, potentially at this time. Um, there were some of the Gospels that they would have been able to read from, um, maybe some other letters that Paul had given, potentially, uh, but there have been reading of Scripture, and there would have been some sort of expounding upon the Scripture. All this would have mirrored the way it used to go down in the temple and in the synagogues, to where the, the, the Old Testament would have been read and would have been explained. Same sort of thing, except now it's done through the lens of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and all everything else, right? And, the, and Moses, right? So that's what's, what, what would have been going on. That being said, there, was also, um, there were also times where there would be, there would be, uh, the Spirit would move on someone and a prophecy would be given, or sometimes uh, there would be uh, an, an, a tongue would be given and there's supposed to be an interpretation for it. And these, these forms of revelation were used by God in order to help build up the church. We'll get into that more in a moment. But what is prophecy? Okay, verse 10. Um, we see prophecy here. It's a human report of divine revelation. A human report of divine revelation. Um, The way that you see it in the book of Acts, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it is uh, an occasional thing. It doesn't happen all the time. It's a spontaneous thing. I mean, it's not exactly planned for. Right? Um, And it's, it's revelation from God. Now, it can occur during preaching. So, there are some times when a preacher... Is, is proclaiming the Word of God and the Spirit uniquely works through a part of it to impact someone um, in a unique way. Um, and that, that is, I think, is a form of how prophecy can work. It can happen in Bible studies. It can happen in counseling. It can happen across, across you know, coffee. You know? I don't think everybody always knows when they're prophesying. Maybe they do. Okay, um, I think, though, we need to see it we need to see it in this way that we should liken New Testament prophecy to Old Testament prophecy, not something that's mixed with error that needs to be sifted through. It's either from the Lord or it's not. Either God's speaking or he's not. We'll see some of that in chapter 14. It's often described as forthtelling, so preaching, teaching kind of feel to it. It can also be foretelling which is the declaration of things to come, like what happened with Agabus in Acts chapter 11, where he foretold of a famine that was going to come. He was a prophet. Prophecy, again, isn't the same as preaching, but it can happen during preaching. Um, So prophecy is spirit-directed application of the truth that either illuminates or directs or convicts someone to something that God wants them to see uniquely. So, for instance, have you ever felt like somebody's preaching and they preach right at you? Like, I think that's an example of what it might be like, okay? So, I mean, I've had people come up to me before after sermons and they would be like, who told you? i would be like, what are you talking about? I want to know who told you. Who told you to say that thing? I was like, I don't even know what thing you're talking about. I don't know who you are. And evidently what had happened was the Lord took his word by his spirit in some way. And whether you want to call it prophecy or not, he applied it to somebody's life in a way that it, it, it shook them. That's the way the prophecy is described in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Okay? That's, that's the way that it's, that it's, it's, it's understood. Now tongues. Um, first of all, so, well, st- tongues are a spontaneous ability to speak uh, another language that you previously didn't know that has the aim of evangelism or edification. Okay, that, those are the, the purposes for it. It's a spontaneous ability to speak another language you weren't previously able to speak that has the aim or the intent or the design of evangelism. We see it in the book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 2, they all start speaking in tongues. Everybody like, they're drunk. like, no, 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 there's an interpretation. And now everybody starts hearing it in their own language. And what's happening is the gospel is going out in glossa, which is what tongues are. It's languages. It's, it's, so I think that tongues are a legitimate language. It's not just like Hindu Babel. It is a, it is a, it's a legit language. Okay? Now, there's some discussion from 1 Corinthians 13 about could it be angelic languages? I don't know. Everybody who I know who speaks in tongues, they all say it's weird. I've never had anybody who I know who loves the Lord and who speaks in tongues who says, oh, it's totally normal. You should completely understand it. Every single person I've ever talked to who says that they have this gift, and this is part of their devotional life and part of the way that their church does things, they say that they themselves understand it to be a strange thing. So it's strange. That's all, that's all there's to it. But the Corinthians loved it. So they, wanna, they want to speak in tongues as much as possible because they think that it's a sign that the Spirit is filling them and that they're mature and they're showing everybody that God's moving in them. What Paul's going to say is actually it's a sign of immaturity. That you're just babbling, and nobody understands what you're saying. He goes, "That's not a mark of maturity. It's a mark of actually self-centeredness." All right, now look at how God arranged the gifts, verses twelve down through thirty-one. He, what he's going to do here is he's going to combat the idea that some parts of the body are more important than other parts of the body. This is what he's he's going after. Okay, you ready? Verse uh, verse twelve. For just as the one body, just as the one body is one. I'm sorry, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So again, many members, one body, one Savior, one Lord, we're one people. This is what the work of the Spirit does. He calls people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and puts them in one body. Okay? Okay. Now that one body, the universal church, shows up in local congregations of little bodies. But it's still all one big body. Now, what he's going to do here in verses uh, 14 through 20 is to talk to those who are tempted to think too lowly of, uh, or too highly of ourselves by looking down on others. And then what he's going to do in verses 21 through 26 is to talk to those who are tempted to think too lowly of themselves by looking up at others. Okay, both of these are manifestations of pride, thinking about yourself in comparison with others. Either thinking of yourself too highly and invaluable, or thinking of yourself too lowly and no value. All right. Verse fourteen. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, "Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body," that would not make it any less part of the body, which is humorous because what? That's right. They can't talk. So he's supposed to see that. It's kind of ironic. They can't talk, so they need another part of the body to even be able to say it. Anyway, verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, which an ear can't say, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So he's addressing those of us who feel inferior, who feel like I don't really have a place. I'm not really important. I can't really do anything. I'm not up front, or I can't sing, or I don't have the gift of administration like that person, or I don't, whatever it is. These are the people who, in their pride, think lowly of themselves. Oh yeah, that's pride. Because God says it's not true, and you're, you're like, the focus is yourself. So, so pride shows itself in thinking either too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself, because in both instances, who are you thinking about? Yourself, yourself right? And God wants you to think about Jesus and about who Jesus says you are. That, that's what's most important, okay? Now, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, because. I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. You ever stubbed your pinky toe? I'm talking about your pinky toe. You ever get one of those on the corner of your dresser? It's just that little toe. It's the smallest of all your toes, but your whole life for the next 45 minutes is over. You squirm and say things you maybe ought not. You're struggling, okay? You're on the struggle bus when you hurt your pinky toe. But it's just a pinky toe. But it doesn't matter how small it is. It's part of the body. You ever get a, I don't know if y'all saw, I've been up here fiddling with a hangnail. I finally got it. But um, it bugging the fire out of me. It's just this little teeny thing. But it's still part of the body, right? So this is what he's saying. On the contrary, the parts that seem weaker are are indispensable. You need your pinky toe. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our uh, unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you notice here, this is very important, the unity is not only rooted in humility, it's also rooted in empathy. Unity does come from a right estimation of yourself. But it also comes with sympathizing and empathizing and caring about how other people feel and how they're experiencing life and what their sorrows are and what their joys are. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. This is part of what a body does. In the same way, if you you break your pinky toe, all of the body sympathizes with what just happened. Everybody knows it, right? And you could make a case that your head's more important than your pinky toe. Maybe true, kinda. But when pinky toes off, everybody knows it, right? I mean, your eyes, everybody looks, right? This is what he's saying. This is how it is in the body. He's using the metaphor, which I do think is intended to be humorous, to show this is how the church works. So if pinky toe in the back row's hurting, mouth up front should care, right? This is, this is how we work. This is where unity comes from. It comes from humility and empathy. Now, in verse 27 here, um, he is going to, to talk about how we can be tempted to think lowly of ourselves again by looking up at, at others. 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Now, the way this is written in the original language, it's written with the assumption of a no. Okay? Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So, the assumption is that not everybody has all the same gifts. So, this is where, in some circles, that if, if you don't have the teaching gift you're kind of JV. Or if you don't have the tongues gift, you don't really have the spirit. Or if you don't have the administration gift, then you're just like, you don't love God, or whatever it is. Right? So that there's different circles that can have those kinds of misperceptions about what's valuable. God says not everybody's gifted the same, and he does that on purpose, so that there can be humility and dependence upon one another. Right? So, so, pause. In the same way that we highlighted earlier with the roles of men and women, Adam was created incomplete, so you as a Christian are incomplete. You're not not the church. You're part of the church, and you need other people. Other people need you. This is why it's a sin to not assemble together. It's a sin to not assemble as part of a church, because God has gifted you with stuff that other people need. This This is part of that. Then he says, verse 31, But earnestly desire the higher gifts or the greater gifts. And I will show you a more excellent way. So what he's going to say here is that though everybody's gifted, there are some gifts that when the people come together are all the more edifying and the church should pray that God would give that in abundance. Now, that's going to be what he talks about in chapter 14. But before he gets to chapter 14, he's going to show you the hinge that holds it all together the heart behind it which is love okay so love above above all else and what we're going to see is the preeminence of love in verses 1 through 3 a description of love in verses 4 through 7 and then the permanence of love verses 8 through 13 if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's showing here the preeminence of love. He says it doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have past your name. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is do you love people? Does does the character of God show up in you? Is the love and the Christ likeness is that manifested in you? Because otherwise, if you just if you you might have big showy gifts, but you're just making noise. If you're not about others and loving others and being concerned about others, so he says you could even be a martyr. And it's really just a waste if it's not rooted in love. So what he's highlighting here is, again, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That grid applies everywhere, and particularly in the church, in regards to the way that we we care for one another and the way we think about one another and the way we minister together. That love is the goal. Now, what is love? Well, love is patient. It's patient with other people. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice with wrongdoings. Something bad happens to somebody else, but it it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things. This picture of love is a picture of the very life of Christ. And this is the life that the Spirit is producing in the church. This is how believers are to relate to one another. Patient, not competitive, not easily irritated, not happy when somebody we disagree with gets stuck to them. It's not love. Rather, it is Christ-likeness. He says, if you think you're gifted, and if you think you're spiritual, but you don't love like Jesus loves, I mean, to a lesser degree, you're not God. I get it. But are you not striving toward love? He's like, you ain't got nothing. I don't care what city you're in. I don't know how awesome you think you are. like, no. Love is the pinnacle of of the purpose of the Spirit's life in us, that we would be united with God and the life of Christ would be produced in us. And the permanence of love is important because all of this is going to It's going to remain. Love never ends, verse 8. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect is the return of Christ. When Christ returns, and He finishes everything, and we're with Him, He'll take us into a new land where you won't need prophecy anymore. And you won't need tongues anymore. And you won't need my preaching anymore. Jesus' sermons will be a lot better. All right? Like, that's what we're, we're looking for. That, And we're not going to be guessing about stuff. We'll know in full. Well, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Remember that next time you're really sure you're right on stuff. You may be right, but you aren't all the way right. Because you don't see everything. We all see everything through a mirror dimly. (laughs) But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is it the greatest? Because there will be a day when you won't hope anymore. Because hope will be realized. And faith won't be needed anymore because you'll have sight. But love, this gift that God is giving to the church, to the Spirit, producing the life of Christ in us, that is what we will know forevermore with the Father. We will know His everlasting, unquenchable love. So in light of that, chapter 14, pursue love. So when you get getting together, pursue love. Pursue building each other up is what he's going to say. Pursue using gifts to build people up. Right? What he's going to do in chapter 14 is he's going to talk about order and edification. He's going to say that prophecy is superior to tongues in verses 1 through 5. Tongues has its place. It's part of the body. Pinky toe. But but prophecy is going to be superior, we're going to see. And the reason is because of, of the way it edifies. So verses 6-19, through 19, you're going to see that there needs to be interpretation for edification. And then chapter uh, 14, verses 20-25, through 25, you're going to see the function of the gifts, the way the, the gifts are intended, intended to work, followed by order in worship, and some final instructions. Verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So he's, again, he's comparing here prophecy and, and tongues. He highlights here that tongues, if there's no interpretation, what can't it do? Edify. It can't edify who? The church. the church. Now, it does edify the person who's doing it. Now, some people have seen that as, as, a, as a reproof. I would say it's only a reproof if they're edifying themselves at the expense of everyone else. So there's nothing wrong with personal edification. That's why you read your Bible. That's why you pray. That's why you've been here all day and all night. Like you're being edified. There's something about that, right? Um, So there's nothing wrong with personal edification. But personal edification at the expense of others, now that's a problem. This is the same sort of thing that we saw with the food sacrifice to idols uh, discussion, right? We're thinking about others, others centered here, okay? Um, Now, verse 6. Now, brothers, if, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teachings? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for the battle? Meaning like, you know, so if somebody blows a bugle, they're like, is that real? Was that, was that... <laughs> or is it, Whoa, 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 like that, now that, that means, all right, there's a fight coming. It was like, and like people, are, what does that mean? And this is kind of the idea here, that if you're just, if you're making noises that are not yet discernible by other people, it may be edifying to you, but it's not edifying to everybody else. Verse 9. So with yourselves, if your tongue if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different tongues in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. He says, You've all experienced situations where you've been speaking with somebody who speaks another language, and you just wish you knew their language, but you don't. You don't understand what you... It seems like they're really saying something important, and you'd love to know what it is, but you can't understand them, and they can't understand you, and nobody is built up. You just kind of got to hug each other and say, see ya, you know? Like, that's all you can do. And he says, this is the same thing that's happening when tongues are going on in a congregation, and there's no interpretation. When someone is just babbling and speaking in a tongue... Um, which is, he says, is, is a language. Now, I just want to say this. I want to say that there are certainly people who fake it, and there are certainly people who are making up stuff, you know, um, you know came in, in Kia, left in a Honda, and like you just learn how to say stuff that sounds like, like stuff, okay? There, there are certainly people that fake it, okay? I've been to churches where they have the come learn how to speak in tongues class, and they just teach you syllables to say. Whatever that is, that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. There's, there is some sort of manifestation of the Holy Spirit in which people speak other languages that um, are edifying to the person and if interpreted would be edified to people who hear it. It's a supernatural gift. It's not just Babel. It's something different. But if there's no interpretation, then it sounds like Babel and it sounds like nonsense and it's useless. Now, what is happening in different situations and scenarios? I don't know. The Lord knows. Those people may or may not know I think you can be deceived and think you're speaking in tongues and just be doing gibberish. I think that can happen too. But I also think it's very clear the Bible says that this is a gift. Okay? We'll come back and talk more. Verse 13. Now, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Which this is in talking with people who have this gift, so I don't have this gift. I've prayed for it for years. I've never had it. Um, But for people who who do have it, they will say that there are times when they, they, they do, in their personal devotions with the Lord, they will have some sort of speaking that comes from the Spirit that they don't actually understand what it means sometimes, and they just feel edified, but they wish they knew what it meant. And there's other times where they do that, and then they understand, they get something, that they understand what it means. That's not been my experience, but this seems to be what he's talking about here. Verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's a tongue-speaking fool. Verse 19, Nevertheless, in church, meaning when when we're gathered as a congregation, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Notice here again, his mind is on others. He would rather limit his freedom of being personally edified by this mysterious gift in order... To have just a few words to say somebody, to say to them, Jesus still loves you. Those five words do infinitely better good for somebody's soul than hobba, you know, that doesn't that nobody can understand. It may be all kinds of edifying for you, but if there's not an interpretation for that and everybody can't be blessed, he says, it's not good for the body. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil but in thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's quoting there from Isaiah 28 where the Assyrians would come and they spoke strange languages when entering Israel as a sign of judgment. Thus, tongues um, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. It's a sign of of judgment for unbelievers because they can't understand what God is saying. In the same way that we talked about earlier with uh, how the Holy Spirit gives wisdom to understand heavenly wisdom. Well, here in the same way, if the Spirit's speaking through somebody in a tongue, but somebody can't understand it, it does no good and it's a word of judgment. These people are on the outside. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore... The whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say you're out of your minds? Which is definitely the charge. I remember before I was a Christian and I saw people, you know, babbling and rolling around, and I was like, they are crazy. Like, it's, I, I was certain it was just absolute nonsense, right? He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, He's convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So both for believers and unbelievers, you've got to be able to understand what's being said. And, And this is the point that he's making here. That discernible, intelligible communication is essential for edification. So if you don't have that, you're not benefiting other people. Now, verse 26, he's going to move on here. I'm just going to do the whole thing and then we'll take questions. I think it's helpful to just get all all his logic out here. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn and a lesson and a revelation and a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two or most three and let each in turn and let someone interpret. So notice, he says, okay, if there's going to be tongues during the gathered service, it's not all everybody at, the, at one time. So I'm not sure if you've ever been in one of those congregations where everybody's speaking in tongues and nobody understands what's happened. Paul would have said, he'd have stopped the music and he'd been like, stop it. Whatever you're doing is not the way that it's supposed to be done. There is orderliness to this. This is not chaos. There is to be intentional edification of other people doesn't mean you can't be celebratory that's great be celebratory that's fine but what he's talking about here there's different ways that different cultures will do this but the idea is order here verse 28 but if there is no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to god he says it's edifying good let that be between you and the lord but you've got to remain silent if there's no interpretation and no ability for anybody to understand what's going on. You've got to remain silent. Okay? Which I'll just pause. I think I'll do it here. I might as well just do it here because I'll probably forget. One of the things I want to encourage us to do as we think about, about this gift, which for many of us seems as a strange thing, is be very careful to not allow abuse, misuse counterfeit things to make you um, doubt true things that God does. So I think sometimes we can just throw the baby out with the bathwater on the whole thing. And I just want to say, really on anything that's dangerous. And I think if there's anywhere that people who probably are in, most people who are in our camp would be tempted toward, it would be that. Let's just throw the whole thing out. It's just, just all charismatic chaos and we just need to get rid of it all i just don't i just want to caution against that doesn't mean that there's not a place for correction there's a place for correction all gifts need to be used rightly okay verse 29 what about prophets well let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said if a revelation is made to another sitting there let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What he's saying here is that during the, the gathering, if, there's, if there was time for prophecy, it would happen and it would, there would be orderliness to it. And when he says there that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, what he's, what he's highlighting is that a prophet, someone who's speaking as a prophet, has the ability to withhold what he's saying, to keep his tongue shut. What he's saying is he's able to not just, just I just can't help it, God said da-da-da, and just start shouting out. He says, no, no, no. It's, you, you, it's subject to your spirit, is, is, is what he's is saying here. So again, what he's doing is he's highlighting that there needs to be order, and there needs to be mindfulness in the way that revelation is, is given. Okay? Now, as in all the churches of the saints... Oh yeah, this one. Here we go. Um, So as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, let me explain to you what this has to mean. We just did a whole section on women praying and prophesying in church. So what this can't be is a universal declaration that women never say anything in a church service. that It can't mean that because he just gave a different instruction a couple chapters earlier. I think what is happening here is he's going back to the same sort of sin that was going on in 1 Corinthians 11, where you had the women who were ripping off their veils and standing up and saying, you know, basically the, the women's lib thing. And now that same sort of spirit of disruption is evidently showing up during the times of, of of prophesying to where, evidently, ladies were, were speaking up and blurting out and interrupting in a way that was disruptive to the congregation and not allowing the elders to have oversight of the congregation to make sure of what's going on during the service. I think that's what it has to mean here. Um, now for those single sisters who would say, "Well, what if you don't have a husband to ask at home?" again, I think the point here is that the church is a family. And that what he's talking about is rather than disrupting services by yeah, inappropriate interjections or protests or whatever it may be, that there should be humble discussions uh, that are going to respect the way that, that God has designed the church to work. I think that's what it has to mean. Okay. Now, verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I write to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Meaning, so if anybody says, "Ah, Paul's full of it, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, well, that means that they are. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking of tongues. An interesting and often overlooked commandment. But all things should be done decently and in order. All right. I'm sure you have a couple questions. Um, let me go ahead and give you my, 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 my statement, my general statement, and then I'm happy to take questions as best as I can. First statement is this. I think that, there is, that you can't make a case from the New Testament that these sorts of, if you will, sign gifts have ceased. I don't think you can make a case from the New Testament. I certainly don't think the idea that the perfect coming is the Bible. Okay, so I've heard that argument, that the, the, the perfect coming in 1 Corinthians 13 is the Bible. Uh, it's it's certainly talking about the Lord. The whole time he's been lifting their eyes up to see the Lord, that's what he's talking about, okay? Because he he, he connects it to the, you know, faith being needed no more and not seeing a mirror dimly. So I I don't think that's the case. I do want to say that I think there are, there's good reason, there's good arguments from both history and experience to say that God doesn't always gift with sign gifts, if you will, um, in every culture, in every age, in the same way. He always seems to be very intentional in what he's doing and why he's doing it and where he's doing it. So it makes sense, I think, very often on kind of front, front line sort of missions work, where you'll see more miraculous things. Sometimes the use of tongues, sometimes prophecy, sometimes healing, sometimes different things like that, it seems to make more sense. This is why oftentimes in Muslim context there's many visions and dreams that people are having as a way to prepare the way for the gospel to move forward. Okay? So it seems that you could make a good case from history and experience that, that God doesn't always gift the same in every time and every place. Okay. I also think that it's important to say that I would just be cautious to take real hard lines against things when you have commands like that last one that we just read that do not forbid the speaking in tongues. I just think you got to explain what that means if you're going to say that there's no tongues. I'm like, okay, I hear you. And there's a lot in me personally and experientially that feels uncomfortable with it because, of the, because primarily of all the abuse that I've seen. I've never felt that for my brothers and sisters who I've talked with, who are humble brothers and sisters who say it's kind of part of their life and what and their devotion with the Lord that I would have never known had I not asked them. So I will occasionally ask people that, "Do you speak in tongues?" And then most people are like, "Huh?" But every once in a while they'll be like, "Why do you ask?" Uh, you, know, like, you know, and then, "Are you coming after me?" You know, uh, I was like, "No, no, I just wanted to know." You know. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. I, I just think what this requires from us is a humble disposition before the Lord and before His Word that says, okay, well, whenever something's happening, we need to respond to it in a biblical way. And I do think the commands that are given should be um, obeyed. So we should pray as a church for God to gift us and to gift us in whatever ways would be most edifying to us. I think that is a good prayer to pray. I think it's good for a believer to pray, God, gift me in whatever ways are going to be best for the building up the body." Please. That's a good thing to pray. And I think some of us are super scared to pray those kind of prayers because what might happen, you know? if like, what are you going to do if tongues fall upon you and you start, oh, like, I don't know. I mean, like, but, but you know, so this is where I would I would just want to give cautions. Um, and, and I want to give those general cautions, and then I'm happy to do my best to answer questions Um And so how do we relate to brothers and sisters who maybe in a different camp where either God is gifting in a unique way that's different than the, the camp you're in or there's abuse there? Um, yeah, I think, I think humbly as in every, any other relationship. So I have, I have friends who I think yeah, misuse gifts and, um, and we would talk about it in the same way that if I misused a gift, I would want them to talk to me about it. So I think the 1 Corinthians 13 about love I think it I think it instructs because that, that's why Paul's writing this whole letter it certainly he's inspired by the Holy Spirit but but he loves this flock he cares about them so that's why he's having this con- conversation with them because he loves them and he loves the church and he wants the church to be built up he wants them to be built up so he is going to give this letter of love to them as a way to help bring some correction so I think you want to do it prayerfully I think you want to do it humbly I think you want to ask a lot of questions similar to the question we had earlier about you know witnessing to Roman Catholics I think I think with anybody, help me understand how your church does what it does. So I've been to a service. I've seen what you guys do. Can we read the end of 1 Corinthians 14? I just went through a little Bible study on it, and I saw some things that made me really wonder, how does your church think about this? And then read that together, and then that might be really helpful. They may have never seen that and been like, oh, well, that's not how we do it. Why don't we do it that way? And then think about how can they, if indeed they are gifted in that way, how can they more Uh, glorify God and edify the body with what they're gifted. Does that make sense? It's a great question. Mm Mm-hmm. Good question. Should we be carving out spaces for these gifts to be used in our, our assemblies now? So I, I have friends who do that. Um, I, know, I know some people who, um, yeah, I mean, they, they have like a, a prophecy mic uh, that there's a portion of the service where it's it's open mic time and anyone who has a prophecy, they can come and give it. Um, explore. Sometimes it's done really well and sometimes it's not, but there's, there's you know, sometimes it's, it is done well and people are edifying. Um, you know, so this is going to freak some of y'all out, but I uh, I very regularly pray for the gift of prophecy. Um, and I think it comes out in my preaching sometimes. Yeah, and good. I think it comes out in my counsel sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, I don't, but I'm not going to publicize that. Like, I mean, you asked me, so that's what I'm telling you. So like, I, I, I pray for that. I mean, I would, I would love for God's people to hear heart-penetrating truths in, every counseling session and in every interaction that people are having over coffee and so I, pr- I pray for that for our church. Yeah. I mean, personally, I've, I've privately prayed for the gifts of tongues since I've been a believer. I mean, not all the time. It kind of comes in waves. This will probably provoke me to pray for it again. Um, it's never happened and I don't feel like I've missed out on a thing because Jesus has given me everything I need and I am don't need to be gifted like everybody else does. So, that's how I'm thinking about it personally. Corporately, I think the way, that, the way that we've written it up in our membership deal is that if someone thinks they have a word from the Lord or think that they have a, a tongue that needs to be interpreted, we ask them to just seek out the elders because the elders uh, are the ones who are going to oversee the things that are being taught in the congregation. We feel a responsibility to do that, so we're happy to do that. I think the main emphasis, though, in the New Testament is that God is most normally revealed to His people through His word by the Spirit that glorifies Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this is why we do so much Bible, is we just want to teach the Bible and let the Bible do the work. Not that we worship the Bible, but we think the Spirit uses the Scriptures to give to people what, what they need. And if, if God wants to gift in some particular way, I'm happy for Him to do that. So, yeah. I mean, I've had enough interesting experiences as a believer um, with miraculous things that it's going to be hard to convince me that it's not from the Lord. Um, but I certainly think there's a lot of counterfeit stuff out there And this is where we just want to be cautious to not Mm overcorrect. That would be my idea. So we describe prophecy as human reported divine revelation, right? So how do we view that in terms of scripture? Like, is it, like, because we don't view day-to-day prophecy as scripture, right? And because you also equated it sort of to the prophets of the Old Testament, sort of, related related to that. So it doesn't need to be written down. It doesn't need to be uh, inscripturated. That's a process that's been completed. So the, the final book of, of the, the canon is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the final complete one. There needs to be no more. So there's, there's no more um, written revelation being given. And this is going to sound uncomfortable for some people, but I, I think it's hard to argue that God is not still giving some sort of revelation to people. Here's what I mean by that. Is not the Muslim who has a vision or a dream of an angel who comes or a man in a white robe who comes and says, you need to seek out a person of the book or you need to go and visit a church or you need to learn who Jesus is. I don't know what you're going to call that, but that's some sort of revelation. God does that. I think, I mean, you may not have experienced that, but that stuff happens. Like we've got people in our church that's happened to, right? So, Um, so I think that's there, I just think everything needs to be done humbly, so I wrote my dissertation on this in seminary, I just, I just always, I highly, highly, highly discourage anybody from ever saying, God told me this, I just think that's really dangerous, so I, yeah, God told me I'm supposed to, you know, supposed to wear wear a sweatshirt today, like, what, like, no, I just don't think that I think that's really dangerous ground to start saying God said this. Now, there are impressions that I censor from the Lord. I just don't trust myself, and I don't know that we should all trust ourselves enough to say, this is what God says. Now There's a difference between that and, I mean, I can think of several times where I think God prophesied through somebody to me. Like, they sat me down and they said, Garrett, I I feel like I'm supposed to tell you something. Here's what I'm supposed to tell you. I don't think it goes now, oh, that's that's 3 Corinthians. I'm going to write it down. But I think whatever it was, it was from the Lord. I don't know if it's word for word. I don't know how all that works. All I know is that conversation changed my life in a way that it helped me to see Jesus more clearly and rightly and value his word more deeply and truly and pursue holiness all the more. If that's the sort of things that it's producing, I'm going to say that might be from the Lord, right? Whatever it is. And I swear, I think sometimes we feel safety in being able to define everything. I don't know the Lord lets us do that all the time. So, like, it's really interesting. The lists of gifts that we have, they're not complete. When you look at the ones that are in 1 Peter or 1 Corinthians or Ephesians, like, they're different lists. And I think there's more gifts that we don't understand. And, and this is where we just, like, we don't need to define everything. What we do need to do is test the spirits. So 1 John 4 is really clear. You test every spirit. Is this word edifying to the body, glorifying to God, contradictory of scripture in any way if any of those are off then it's not from the Lord and and that's where I think there needs to be some some wisdom and humility and here's what I would just say though it's not super spiritual to get those kinds of things I think we would all kind of like to have those kinds of experiences with God because I think we we feel like that would be nice just to know he loves us at least that's how that is for me sometimes I kind of feel like I think if you want to know if God loves you you just read his word like, he tells you that he loves you. He's given us everything that we need in the scriptures. If God wants to give something else, he's God. He can do anything he wants, you know? And we can trust him in that. Yeah. So, God said to me, God told me what you just, what you just said. What about God answered that prayer? I mean, sometimes it's kind of the same kind of thing. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, well, for, well, wait, well, so I, I understand. Yeah, so first of all, God may be answering Drew's prayer. It may just not be yet. Satan may have given you that car. So sometimes it's difficult to, you know, to figure out. You know, I think be, so I do think we need to be careful. You know? But I think, it's, I think it's fine for a believer to be able to, to discern that things that you've been trusting God for in his word are happening in your life, and you see it happening, to be able to say, That's from, I think it's from you, Lord. Thank you. That's different than God told me to say this to you or God did the, And especially the way it's being used in the Corinthian church, manipulative and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's where you can see it's, there's a huge difference, right, uh, between, between, between those things. So that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, what would you say about the argument that uh, tongues are intelligible, like real human language versus... Well, I think in some cases they certainly are. We see that in Acts two. I mean, in Acts 2, they are certainly intelligible human languages. Is that what it always is? I certainly think it's some sort of language. I at least got to, I don't know 100% if chapter 13's like speaking about angelic languages is, is tongue in cheek or if that's a real thing. I have no idea. I'm just happy to plead the fifth on that one. I, I, I think we just want to say more is what, what are we doing with it? That's. What's the application? What's the implication? Those are the things I'm, I'm, I'm more worried about. I'm happy to plead some ignorance unless it's going to lead into some kind of error. So, oh, there's so many. But thankful, thankful for what you said about guardrails, basically on the gifts. Then how do we balance that with commands elsewhere in the New Testament that say, "Don't quench the spirit," "Don't, don't grieve the spirit." So how do we, how do we think yep. through that? Well, don't grieve the Spirit it's in the context of sinning. Yeah. So don't sin in a way that the, the Spirit cries out, Jesus wouldn't do that. This is un- displeasing, right? The quenching of the Spirit is in context with prophetic utterances, right? And this is where I think, um, yeah, don't in the same way, don't forbid the speaking of tongues. I, I think we have to see those as, as legit commands from the Lord for us to be cautious about resisting um, things that the Lord might be doing. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I have much more. I'm going to take one more question. Steve? Uh, in my early life as a Christian, I was part of an Assemblies of God congregation for a while and really felt the pressure of that congregation. The question was, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And the answer are is you, yes. Which, by which mm-hmm. thing? Yep. Can you speak in tongues? Right. I, there, I, I think there are... I don't know. Maybe I was in an unusual one, but I sense there's denominations out there that really pressure that. Like that's really a sign that you're a real Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and this is where again I would say there are certainly errors in this understanding, in the same way that there's errors in churches that just teach the Bible and can overemphasize other things. So I think every gift that's being used needs to be evaluated according to the Scripture. And yeah, but that that would be a particular error that, that does show up sometimes in, in certain circles. Drew? Um, Could you give us a quick word about how believers can grow in their gifts, how we can know how gifted? Yep. The best way to learn what your spiritual gift is is to serve. Just get in and love people, serve people, try to obey the commands in the context of one another and over time people will be able to see and notice and affirm you have this gift. Do you know that? I mean like I see that you really bless people. So, I think that's the best way to do it, is just actively love people and, and try to help the gospel be made known. And as you do, we're going to see how the body works together to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would guide us into truth. Lord, This is there's some murky waters here for me personally, and I just pray that if I've said anything in error, that you'd yeah, make that clear. Um, But Lord, we do pray that the things are clear and plain here, that you'd help us to receive them and to believe them and to walk in your ways in a way that would build up the body and glorify your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.